So uh, this evening we want to talk a little bit about Shavuot uh, and what it means, uh, what it means uh, uh, to us. I said at the, uh, at the outset, at the very beginning of the service, that the meaning of the holiday is uh, agricultural, right? Uh, the Feast of the Harvest, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, uh, and, uh, and I suppose it would be appropriate for us to turn to Leviticus chapter 23 for just a little reminder of uh, the, the biblical ancient uh, meaning of the holiday. All right. In Le- oh, I'm in the wrong book of the Bible. That won't help. In Leviticus 23, that's because it's mentioned in Exodus 23. That's another story. Okay. In uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 23, beginning uh, in verse uh, 9, okay, it says, I, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall present the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now this is the early spring harvest. This is the barley, the barley harvest. This is... The day that when we say Yom HaBikurim here, we often are referring to this day. And that's the day, of course, you know, when Yeshua rose from the dead and uh, on that Feast of First Fruits, uh, right following the Passover. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male uh, lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma and its libation, a fourth of a hint of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Now, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of that wave offering, from the day of that earlier Yom HaBikurim, we have a latter Yom HaBikurim, okay? There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places Two loaves of bread for a wave offering. Made of two tenths of an ephah, they shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. This was a wheat offering. Okay? Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their libation, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma uh, uh, to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places and uh, throughout your uh, generations. 
And that is Shavuot. You count seven weeks and then the next day. That makes 50 days. And on that day, there is a new grain offering, which is a wheat offering made of two loaves of bread, baked with leaven, which is kind of interesting, baked with leaven and offered, uh, offered to the Lord. And so it was a thank offering. Uh, uh, clearly an offering of thanksgiving to God for the first fruits of the harvest. And by bringing to God the first fruits of the harvest, it was a, it was a belief and a trust that God would provide a full harvest. So in a way, it was actually thanking God for the full harvest. And you know that there are three actual harvest festivals. One is the early first fruits, this is the latter first fruits, and then Sukkot. And all the other holidays surround these feasts of ingathering, feasts of uh, thanksgiving uh, for, the, for the harvest. In fact, you know, Yeshua referred uh, uh, to these harvest times, these feasts of ingathering. In the Gospel of John, when he says, you say there are four months and then comes the harvest, I tell you the fields are white already to harvest, you know? Uh, and uh, so when Yeshua related these harvest festivals uh, to an ingathering, uh, to an ingathering of people, to an ingathering of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of revival, of, of people uh, uh, who are uh, restored uh, to, the, to the Lord. So it is indeed a, a festival of, uh, we could say, an agricultural festival, but a physical holiday celebrating the land. And, uh, and so that's very important for us to indeed remember, that part of God's promise is indeed the land uh, and the fruit of the land. And that's why we have uh, dairy, sweet dairy products uh, on this holiday, because we're reminded of it, that it's a land of milk and honey. See? Uh, some will say that that's a reminder of the Torah, being sweet is the word of God, but, but that, and that's true, far be it from me to say otherwise. Uh, but I would suggest that the basic reason is the land, of, uh, the land of Israel, okay? Now, as you have heard, and as you know, that uh, the rabbis came up with a, with a historical uh, meaning uh, for this holiday, and uh, I won't go into the history of it all, but in all of the agricultural holidays, over time, a historical meaning came to be attached to them. Okay? So the historical meaning of this holiday is the Torah, the giving of the Torah. And that, that's what makes this holiday most important. Today, most Jewish people are not farmers, uh, although in Israel, there's plenty of farmers. Uh, but in the diaspora, clearly... Uh, there aren't that many Jewish farmers. There are some. Uh, I, and so we have a historical meaning. And the historical meaning is the reception of the Torah uh, at Mount Sinai. And, in other words, the covenant. Uh, you know, in Judaism, we say the birthday of Judaism. That's what, uh, what, how many people say it. Uh, uh, because of God entering into the covenant relationship uh, with, the, with, with the Jewish people. And so we're thankful for the Torah, hence Akdamut, you know, hence reading the Ten Commandments. 
We're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful uh, uh, for uh, what God has given uh, uh, to us. But you know, what's also interesting is that even in Judaism, there is a sense of understanding another kind of aspect of this. That the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai points indeed to the future, to the, uh, to the Olam Haba, to the world to come. And uh, that by counting off the days of the Omer, it's like a microcosm of our whole lives looking forward to that day in the future, uh, you know, when the whole world will be Torah, so to speak. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, it is certainly uh, uh, quite important and, and uh, significant. So we're thankful for the land, we're thankful for the produce of the land, uh, and we are thankful indeed for the Torah. We could say we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful uh, that God has given us a way, like a roadmap, a way, uh, a way to live. So it is amazing when you think about it, when you come to the pages of the Brit Chadashah, that we have uh, a historical account of an event that takes place on Shavuot. And it says that it takes place on this holiday. And it has much to do with covenant. It has much to do with the uh, Torah. Okay? So after Yeshua ascends you know, to the right hand of the Father, we read in uh, the book of Acts, in the first chapter, in the eighth verse, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, interestingly enough, uh, what we see here is, is that they had to wait, right? Uh, and it's interesting, uh, if we go back, actually, to verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. And that is the pouring out of the Ruach. And we read in, uh, for example, the prophet of Joel that in that day, the Spirit of God would be poured out. Uh, and so the, the idea of the, the, the Spirit of God being poured out is a Jewish sign of the beginning of the Olam Haba. We usually don't think of it in those terms. But it, is, it was a sign within Israel uh, of the beginning of the end. Okay, So when you come to the second chapter... And he says, and when the day of Shavuot had come, Pentecost, same thing, 50 days, right? The Feast of Weeks, one might say. When Shavuot had come, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. This was this great miracle 
that you had uh, here uh, Jewish people from all over speaking to each other in languages they could all understand. Okay, and this was a uh, this was a sign. In a way, this is a description, like a microcosm, a representation of Jews from the four corners of the earth coming together, like we read what will take place, you know, at the end, coming together and being filled with the Ruach, okay? This was it. This was the beginning uh, of the end. And then you have a description of the people uh, uh, of, of uh, sort of a, a, a representation of the people that were, uh, that were there, representing uh, the known world, the, what we would call today mostly the, the Middle East and the, surrounding, and the surrounding areas. So here people are saying, what's going on? What's taking place here? And so Peter stands up and he says, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of thy spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men uh, shall dream dreams. And then he goes on. You know, he quotes more of the, uh, the passages. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will... In those days pour forth my spirit, they shall prophesy, I will grant wonders in the sky above, and, and, and he goes on. So then he says, men of Israel, he's talking to the Jewish people, because this was, a, this was an event in Israel among Jewish people. Listen to these words, Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, that's important because that kind of statement is going to get repeated in almost every speech in the, at least the first half of the book of Acts. And we might think that, wow, he's really like giving it to them. You know, whom you nailed to the cross. I would suggest that that's not exactly what his uh, demeanor was. His point in saying whom you nailed to the cross was not in whom you nailed to the cross. No, his point was you saw him die. You saw him die, but he's not dead anymore. That's the point in all of those similar passages. You saw him. He, you, you know, either you did it or Pilate did it. There's another passage that says everybody did it. But you saw it, that he was dead. But now he's not dead. He's raised from the dead. This, you see, is the good news. This is what these early uh, messages by Peter and by Stephen uh, and by Paul uh, were about. And because he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. Dianu, that would have been enough, but he did more. That because of that, he is now at the right hand of the Father and the, the Ruach has been poured out. The eschaton has begun, you see. That was the gist 
of this message. So when you read on here in Acts, you read about how first it was the Jerusalem Jews who were believing, and then it was the Hellenistic Jews who were believing, and then it's God, it unfolds. This is how Acts unfolds. Then it's God-fearers who are believing, you know, Gentiles who have kind of one foot in the synagogue and one foot out. And then the most radical of all in Acts chapter 13, which is not a, it's a kind of a well-known passage, but not as well-known as some others. But this is a dramatic moment in Acts 13, a dramatic moment. I won't take the time, while you're turning to Acts 13, I won't take the time to go through the Cornelius event in chapter 10. But you know that Peter sees the sheet with the animals, and you know that it's not about dietary laws, because that's what Peter says. He said, by seeing that, I knew that I should go to Cornelius, that I should go to the Gentiles, right? Cornelius, though, was a friend of the Jewish people and so on, but that is an important moment, going to Gentiles. The Gentile mission doesn't actually begin to the 10th chapter, okay? That's important. The Gentile mission doesn't begin till we get to the 10th chapter of Acts. And then that is basically the situation with Cornelius, and you can read that on your own. But when you come to the 13th chapter, Paul and Barnabas are out on their first journey, and they come across this man who was not a God-fearer, who was not somebody uh, who was interested in Jewish people, Okay, and he had a name that you probably never even heard. His name was Sergius Paulus. Okay, he was a proconsul. He was he was a magistrate, uh, you know, of uh, uh, from Rome. Okay, a man of intelligence. So, without going into all the details, he comes to believe. Okay, he comes to uh, uh, believe. And uh, we see here in, let's see, okay, verse, yeah, in verse uh, 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the, of the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you something really interesting about how, uh, about how uh, Luke writes this. He does something really fascinating here. Up until this point, we're reading about uh, Saul, Saul, Barnabas, most, mostly Barnabas and Saul, okay? Now, one verse, in, up in verse 9, it does say, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him. But he's not called, Luke doesn't call him Paul yet, okay? He's Saul. Beginning with Sergius Paulus, this Roman magistrate coming to believe. From then on, Saul, he's never called Saul again. It's called Paul after this event. And it's not Barnabas and Saul. It's Paul and Barnabas. So Luke is doing something here in the, in the literature, you, you, you know? And uh, what he is doing is he accentuating Paul's Gentile mission. Okay? So that's important. Now, What's also important to understand now is when you come to the 15th chapter, I'd love, uh, you know, after Genesis, uh, hopefully we're going to go through Acts, but I, I, can't, uh, I cannot stop now and, and uh, talk about things. 
But what we want to understand here, though, is how the, this message going to Gentiles is framed. And remember this, that the, uh, so, so the pouring out of the Ruach is the sign of the beginning of the end times. And there's another sign that goes along with the pouring out of the Ruach. And that sign is Gentiles, non-Jews, coming to believe. People who were pagans coming to believe in the God of Israel, yet not becoming Jews, like we've, like we've uh, heard, right? Uh, and so this also is a sign. Gentiles believing is a sign of the eschaton in, in the Jewish belief system. So that means that people who are not Jewish coming to faith in Yeshua is part of the Jewish end times, okay? So uh, it's, it's an amazing thing, and this is what was so radical uh, at the, in the day. Not Jewish people believing, not Jewish people uh, believing in the Messiah of Israel, but Gentiles believing it, right? So in Acts 15, you had in the congregation at Antioch, which was uh, in Syria, you had some Pharisees who came to believe. And they uh, came to what we would call probably a conclusion that you and I might come to. If Gentiles are coming to believe in the God of Israel, and the Messiah of Israel, well then of course they need to be circumcised. They need to identify as Jews. That's what happens, right? Well, this created no small disturbance, right? And it says in verse 2 of Acts 15, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. In other words, this is too big for us. So they go to Jerusalem. And they hear the testimony of Peter uh, and, you know, and Gentiles coming to believe. They hear the testimony of Paul and Gentiles coming to believe. This is amazing. This is fantastic that Gentiles are believing the message of the Messiah of Israel. See? Okay? Because it was part of the Jewish end times experience. Part of the Jewish end times experience is Gentiles coming to believe. All right. So when all has been said and done, uh, James speaks. James, who is the macher uh, of the congregation at Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 13, And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of God. Now that's taken from the Septuagint, but when you look back in uh, the prophet Amos, from where this comes, it is very interesting. It's from the ninth chapter of Amos. And here uh, we have our English translation from the ninth chapter of Amos. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins. 
and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So lo and behold, what James is saying, in the prophets, we read the promise that when the fallen booth of David is rebuilt, Gentiles are going to come and believe. And so it's interesting what it says. Not only, you know, in verse 11, it says, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, speaking of the Davidic dynasty, which is who Yeshua is, the, you know, the Messianic king. And, but it's interesting, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom, the remnant of Edom. Edom, the enemy of the Jewish people. Another one who is, uh, uh, finds its origins in, uh, you know, in the, one of the sons of Israel, Esau, right? Uh, and so we see like a return of Esau, the redemption of Esau. It kind of reminds me of this morning a little bit. You know, the redemption of Moab, the redemption of, of, uh, the redemption of Esau uh, uh, here, uh, and of the nations that are called by my name. And so Edom comes to like represent, you might say, the other, you know, uh, and all the peoples who are called by my name. So what does James say? He says, look, the, this is what the prophets foretold, that in the messianic times, Gentiles will believe. And so they don't have to be circumcised. In fact, that defeats the purpose. Making them into Jews defeats the purpose. And so when James says, it is my judgment that we don't trouble those Gentile converts, anyway, those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. I'm going to suggest that he's not telling them that uh, they are obligated uh, to keep kosher. He's saying to them, what they have to do is quit their pagan ways. They have to quit their pagan ways. That's what he's saying to them. And that is reflected in all the letters that Paul writes to all those congregations, uh, you know, that they have to change their, their, their pagan ways. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what he says. You, you know, they don't have to become Jews, but they can't be pagans anymore. You know, now it still remains to be seen. The rest of the story is, so what are they? <laughs> you know, but here is this ruling is why we are what we are. We are what we are today because of this, this ruling. So my point in bringing this up is to say that on Shavuot, this is the great celebration of the beginning of the, the eschaton from a Jewish point of view, which is inclusive of Gentiles. In other words, if Gentiles aren't coming to believe there's something wrong, wow, what a twisted way that, that, you know, that we, we've never heard anything like that before, right? Usually it's the other way around, right? Uh, and of course, socially in our world, it is that way. The norm is for people who are not Jewish to believe. And how wonderful it is to see Jewish people who come to believe. But then it was, wow, Gentiles are coming to believe and we're one in Messiah. That is indeed our testimony. And that is indeed what we are trying to say. There is, there is nowhere that this is no longer a Jewish testimony. And, and so what I want to do is just for a quick moment, go back to a very famous passage that usually on Shavuot I might bring up, so you probably know what it is anyway. And that is in the first 
a chapter of the Gospel of John. Okay? In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, you have a very famous verse, right? Uh, John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua the Messiah. Traditionally, oh, you see, uh, law and grace, right? The law is given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through the Messiah. Okay, so may I suggest that that's not the comparison in the verse, that that's not even what, it's, uh, what it is uh, talking about. I'm going to suggest that law and grace and truth are basically the same thing, okay? And that what is being compared is given through Moses and realized through Yeshua, okay? Given through Moses and realized through Yeshua. Now, you know, uh, a really great thing, how many of you, I hope some of you have been reading Henry's uh, masterpiece here. Uh, you know, this is 61 pages. How do I know that? Because I printed it out a little while ago, right? I, and I printed the whole thing out on purpose. 61, pa 61 pages. Fantastic. Mitsuyan, great job, Henry Louis Goulet. Uh, fantastic. I hope that we have been reading it and making the most of it. And if you haven't, it's okay. Forget about the dates and just start reading. It's fine. Okay, so Henry, uh, I know you didn't invent this word, but let's just say that you have now popularized this word, super eminent, right? What a great word. If you've been reading this, you know that he kind of weaves that word in here, super eminent. So what's great about that word is it's that the, the first thing is eminent, <laughs> you know, which is already really great. And then on top of it, you get super eminent, right? Which is like, Man, out of this world. And so, Moses is eminent. Moses is great. Wow, Moshe Rabbeinu, the great Moses who gave us the Torah. If the great Moses who gave us the Torah is uh, uh, compared to Yeshua, Yeshua is out of this world. Because the uh, because Moses, the best Moses could do, and Moses was great, but the best he could do was give us laws on stone, which is great, but it doesn't give life, right? And that's what Paul, by the way, is trying to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, see? But Yeshua, the, the, the Torah is realized in him. Wow! It's realized in him. And so while Moses is great, that's the point of bringing up his name. Moses is great. Yeshua is the Messiah. No one's going to compare Moses to the Messiah. Wow, the Messiah is great, right? Uh, and, uh, and so what we see here uh, is that in this pouring out of the Ruach, we have now something uh, that is uh, something that is indeed uh, a little different. And what is a little different is not the Torah, but the covenant. What has happened now is, in the coming of the Messiah, in all of this pouring out of the Ruach, in the inclusion of Gentiles, we have now, uh, uh, rather than the Torah on stone, we have a new mode of implementation, one might say, of the Torah. 
And that new mode of implementation is via the Ruach, via the Holy Spirit. So now the Torah comes to live in us. And I'm not going to take the time, but read it in Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, this is what he says, right? He'd give us a new heart. He'd place his spirit within us in order that we might be able to live out his statutes and ordinances. He places the Torah within us. It's not a different Torah. It's a new mode of implementation. It's a new power. It has new results. The result is forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, right? If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 and you look at the Brit Chadashah, the new covenant, this is exactly uh, what, you, uh, what you read. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers of the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. A new mode of implementation. And on their heart, I will write it. Right? A new result. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Like, you know, in a new way. And then it says, they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. A new scope. There's a new scope here. And that is everybody. Everybody. See? Not just a few. Not just the Levites. Uh, not just the kings. But now the Ruach will dwell in all, obviously, who uh, embrace the covenant. You know? Now, he's not speaking here in this particular passage about Gentiles, but that's what Amos talked about. Amos brought that in, okay? And then it says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. New results uh, of the covenant, forgiveness. In other words, what he's saying here is, in the other covenant, it did not provide the power in order to bring the consummation of this relationship to pass. So God is saying, I'm going to do it myself. And that's why he sent Yeshua to come and die for our sins and be raised from the dead and to ascend to the right hand of the Father and to pour out the Ruach. That is how he realizes the Torah, realizes this covenant relationship within us to all, uh, to all who uh, believe. And that is indeed what Shavuot uh, is uh, is all about. And so, if you read uh, today's installment, okay, you would know, and you may know this anyway, that when we read about the Ruach, we read that we have the first fruits. Speaking of first fruits, we have the first fruits of the Ruach, right? You read that in, for example, Ephesians chapter 1, right? We have the first fruits, first fruits of the Ruach. That means we're given like the, the, uh, we're given like the stamp, you know, like you have the Ruach within you and that is the assurance that you'll get to the final destination, okay? Uh, and so we have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fru fruits of, uh, the, of, uh, of the, the consummation, right? That's why one could say that uh, uh, the covenant is kind of like a ketubah, you, you know, we have the, we're experiencing the beginning of the consummation 
uh, of the relationship. By having the, the, the Spirit of God now, we have the assurance of, of uh, going, all, going the distance. Okay? And when we talk about journey, when we talk about a journey, what we remember during these 50 days is that we're always on a journey, not just in this time of year, but it is, symbolizes our lifelong journey, our lifelong journey of faith in a wilderness where we have to negotiate things all the time. There's always decisions to make, always ethical and moral choices to make, always things that are going to be, that are going to surprise us. And now and then a left hook and a right jab, you know, or is it, the, yeah, uh, come our way. Uh, and things that, you know, that don't make sense to us. And so it is because we have the Ruach that we can keep navigating on this journey. And God has given to us uh, his word uh, that transforms us so that we can navigate the journey of this life. And so on uh, Shavuot, we celebrate the inauguration of the, the, of the beginning of the end and of the empowerment, the promise of the empowerment that we have to walk in fullness uh, through this life uh, as we look forward to the day of Messiah. And so we rejoice. And I guess I'll just throw in <laughs> the fact of going back to what we said at the very beginning, that the land itself is something that we rejoice in because the land itself is part of that whole big end time event. Uh, you know, so you have the land, you have the Ruach, you have people, you have the Torah. You know, all of these are pillars uh, that are signs of the end, and we are experiencing that ourselves. That's why, what do we say? We desire to experience Israel's future today. And isn't that a great thing? That we can, we can experience the future, at least the taste of it, today. And so on Shavuot, let us rejoice let us celebrate. Let us have fellowship and and eat uh, sweet, uh, sweet uh, dairy uh, desserts that remind us of the milk and honey of the land and the milk and honey of the Lord. So let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you, God, that no matter who we are, no matter how much we know or we don't know, thank you, Lord, that you love us uh, to such a degree that you have provided for us the covenant. You've provided for us forgiveness. You have provided uh, the indwelling ruach. You have provided the empowerment. Lord, all you ask of us is to have a will to say yes. God, we thank you for that. And uh, God, may a Shavuot be a celebration uh, of uh, an end of the season, but a reminder uh, that this season continues until the day of Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you'll be with us to the end of the age, uh, Lord, on this journey. And we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.